0: Every community is grappling with these housing
1: concerns. We've doubled down on really resident engagement because angry residents actually pose a business risk.
2: It's going to be a challenge for the foreseeable future. Uh, We're in a crisis. I think we can take some solace in knowing we're not at
0: it alone either.
3: You're listening to Think Revelstoke, a show about the future of tourism in Revelstoke and the greatest challenges of today's tourism destinations, along with their most inspiring solutions.
4: We're speaking to you from beautiful Revelstoke, British Columbia, a city on the territory of four nations where we live, work, and adventure, the Snakes, the Shwetmec, the Silk, and the Tunaha.
3: I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think.
4: And I'm Robin Goldsmith, Destination and Sustainability Manager at Tourism Revelstoke. As part of this podcast, we're reaching out to industry experts and leaders in other destinations to hear their perspective on how we can manage tourism for a better future.
3: We're speaking to Eliza Voss, the VP of Destination Marketing at the Aspen Chamber Resort Association in Aspen, Colorado. Eliza, you were the lucky recipient of a home from Aspen's community housing program. Can you tell us how you felt when you found out the news?
1: I can. We had um, been playing the lottery, as they say, for a while. And I had a newborn baby who wouldn't sleep. And we they were sharing a room with my older son and we won the lottery. And I literally cried tears of joy (laughs) Um, that I would be able to put the kids separately and that sleep was in my future. And it was it, it just it was a total game changer for our life here.
3: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to Aspen?
1: Sure. Um, I moved to Aspen following um, graduating from college in Pennsylvania and came out here in the fall of 2006. Um, and the plan was just to come for six months and kind of ski bum i waitress at um, a pizza place here called Brunelleschi's, which is still alive and well and um, just skied and waitressed and at the end of that six months I was like whoa there is no way I'm leaving this place and um, I love it here and I've been here ever since I met my husband here and we have three children here as well there is background to my parents eloped and got married here in Aspen they were teachers but now they live on the east coast and I was raised on the east coast (laughs) that's pretty interesting
4: family connection like you've got some sort of deep roots for just coming out as a ski bum so i know aspen has long been a a hot spot for for visitation and has appealed uh to many types of travelers but um what does visitation in aspen look like today um how many how many visitors would you say you have
1: on an annual basis versus uh, how many people actually live in aspen It's kind of, we call it the ungettable get, um, that number of how many visitors. Um, I think, you know, I would say peak season, we can swell between, to forty to 60,000 people. Um, That's within Aspen and Snowmass. Um, We have about 7,200 year-round Aspen proper residents. Picking County, which is the county Aspen sits in, is a little bit larger, about 20,000 and Snowmass is also part of Pitkin County, and they, they are a separate government entity as well.
4: And so um, in terms of your workforce, that's drawing from, from not only Aspen itself, but also the larger county?
1: The entire county, and we are in the Roaring Fork Valley, so we also draw from Basalt, Carbondale, and Glenwood Springs. I would also say we pull as far as Rifle, which is on the I-70 corridor. So in Aspen itself, would you say there's a workforce housing crisis? Aspen has always had a workforce housing shortage and COVID kind of accelerated or exacerbated that. How would you say uh, COVID exacerbated that? We saw an increase of part-time residents using their residences for longer periods of time, so they may have used to rent out a basement apartment or something like that because they were not here often. Um, but now they were using their residence more permanently. Um, And then we saw people who either accelerated plans to move here. That kind of urban exodus um, caused people to come and live in Aspen more more permanently.
3: A lot of ski resort communities and tourism destinations are experiencing uh, some degree of shortage of workforce housing. Could you give us a sense in Aspen of, what percentage of the workforce or how many people are are driving in and out each day and how far are they coming from?
1: I think the latest number was like 40% of the workforce is driving in. It's probably increased as well. And then, you know, I think a lot of times in these conversations um, everybody's using the same term, but they might mean different things. So I think there's like employee housing. So that's long-term year-round employees. And then obviously when the infrastructure of Ski Mountains is in place, there's also a need for J-1 visa workers to come in. And so that's more like kind of temporary or seasonal housing. So we have both, a need for both for sure, but they're definitely filling a different niche or need within the community.
4: And what has Aspen done to date um, to address the housing needs, I guess, of both of those categories? So, your, your temporary workers in the
1: winter as well as your um, year round residents. So, I think Aspen, in terms of employee housing programs, is probably one of the first on the scene in the early 70s, actually. The employee housing program started here. It's called the Aspen and County Housing Authority APSHA. Um, and we have in that program about 3,000 units. Um, And those are deed restricted units and there's different categories of, in terms of income and asset caps for each category. So that program has been amazing. It's been in place for a long time. And I would say that's more for, you know, permanent year-round full-time residents. And then in addition, some of the largest employers have purchased their own housing to provide to seasonal workers. So for example, the Aspen Skiing Company owns several um, housing developments that are in place to house seasonal workers. Um, So that's both for winter and summer season. And then we have um, just as one example, the Aspen Music Festival and School has a campus here that they share with the Aspen Country Day School so during the school year, it's a, it's a private school here. And then in the summer months, that, um, they have housing for the music school students on that campus. So it's kind of a you know, seasonal dual purpose. Um, but many places um, admire that model that the, the music festival um, and the country day have kind of come up with.
4: Right. So kind of taking advantage of an empty space. Exactly. Do you know how many people um, the, the ski company
1: houses in the winter? I don't know how many they house, um, but they, they house a majority of their workforce. Right. That's interesting, which
4: I imagine is, is fairly substantial.
1: Yeah. And I, I do think it's never enough. Whatever they have, they always need more. Right.
4: So you're, you're currently in, a, in supported housing in Aspen. How does that process work?
1: Yeah, there's um, six different categories of housing that you can win in, and you can only bid within your category. And then it's a lottery process, and you get um, a certain number of, let's say, number, you know, your name in the hat, uh, a certain number of times based on how many years you've lived here. I believe you can only be eligible once you've lived here for four years to have ownership employee housing, you can have rental employee housing prior to that time period and you purchase it from the housing authority like normal we have a mortgage um all of those things but it cannot appreciate with the market rate it's capped at three percent and there are certain things you can get credit for in terms of improvements like if you put in hardwood floors or something you could get the credit for that but you're also capped at the amount of money You could get out in terms of what you put in Um, and I think that's also a thing to learn from um, for your program is that you know in my case this is my home I'm going to live here so I'm going to make it how I want it to but in some cases it prohibited people from updating their unit and so now some people are winning these units that are frankly dilapidated um, not livable and there's no real accountability to the previous owner because they can only get X amount out, and then the housing authority is not you know, going to invest funds into updating. So there is some learning there that there should be perhaps incentive to keep your unit at minimum standards so that the entirety of the housing stock you know, comes along.
3: Is there any consideration given to categorization of essential workforce or front-facing workforce in terms of eligibility or criteria or points or anything?
1: In the rental pool, there is um, first responder priority, Um, but in the APSHA program, it is just that you have to be working a certain number of hours within Pitkin County. The city of Aspen has also purchased some of its own stock for city of Aspen employees. There are some nonprofits that also have ha- purchased units. Um, and so that's amazing. And I think the trick there, right, is that sometimes you could end up in a job you don't want to be in because you your housing is tied to it, um, which is why I think, at the program that I'm part of, the APSHA, is really nice because the only stipulation is that I'm working somewhere within Picking County.
3: The first responder example is, is really interesting in terms of those essential roles that the community needs. I wonder if there's some learning in there for us.
1: Yeah. As part of dev- every development, this might be good for your program as well. If something was being redeveloped, there was an employee housing component Align, alongside it. So if you redeveloped a hotel, you have to provide X number of employee housing beds and it doesn't necessarily have to be on site, like on the same footprint as the hotel, but you have to have a plan for providing, I don't know, five units.
4: Do you think that balance has been found or do you think Aspen is on its way to finding balance?
1: I think my role in the community is trying to help kind of restore that balance um and certainly you know we are a mature destination i think the majority of our residents understand that the quality of life we have here often is a result of having tourists come in we have many kind of amenities because of that as residents um but i do think it feels like in the past three years there has like there have been heightened tensions um, in this kind of us versus them mentality, which I think we need to move away from.
3: If you could wave a magic wand, what solutions would you put in place right now to housing or otherwise?
1: I think there just needs to be so much more cooperation. And I I think we have wonderful relationships with the city and the county and the ski company and Snowmass Tourism And yet we still need to do more because ACRA, Aspen Chamber Resort Association, is not going to solve these problems in a vacuum and neither is the city or the county. So I really think we need to kind of dig deep and work all together instead of kind of um, talking about solutions that we need to actionize and do that collaboratively. Is there anywhere that you and Aspen
4: look to as an example um, for housing models? Like I know Aspen, from my knowledge, is one of the mountain towns that was that was on the forefront of developing solutions. And so is there any is there anywhere that's further along or that has some innovative solutions that um, that you're you're looking to with admiration?
1: You know, not from the I think our employee housing program is really been a wonderful asset to the community. I think the piece that Aspen as a community missed on, um, or was late to the game on, was short-term rental regulations. And um, we only have just passed something this past November 2022. And short-term rentals have always been part of the bed base here in Aspen. And I think because um, that that industry didn't really regulate itself. It ended up getting regulated by government and it's probably not the perfect solution to um, the impacts we were seeing. And I think, you know, Glenwood Springs even just down the road from us um, had short-term rental regulations in place a decade ago. I know that the Santa Barbara and Montecito area have um, some stringent regulations in place there and even i believe it's cape cod on massachusetts they had kind of a impact fee associated with short-term rentals that went into protecting their watershed a while ago um so i i think that that train left the station and um we didn't get in front of it
4: so you've just come out of a destination management planning process in aspen um, which is which is how I first uh, connected with you because you also worked on that with um, Rodney's team at Destination Think. The sentiment that resonated with me when I was reading through the plan was, I, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it was we are beautiful but we are angry. Uh, can you explain that that sentiment and what that means?
1: Yeah, um, that, what, that was the buzz line from the report, um, beautiful but angry, and I think it was just acknowledging that everybody that was interviewed in those stakeholder engagement piece of the plan um, acknowledged how lucky we were in the landscape and the beautiful surroundings we had, but there's there was definitely some negative sentiment towards tourism economy and um, kind of like a I would say a bitterness that came through in those um, interviews and So that beautiful but angry captured that and I think therein is kind of why we've doubled down on really resident engagement because, as you know, angry residents actually pose a business risk to those tourism businesses that rely um, on people coming into the community as visitors.
4: So we're just kind of wrapping up our um, resident surveying and getting to drafting our destination management plan here in Revelstoke. So do you have any advice for us in that respect?
1: Um, One thing I wish I had done was, as you kind of see the themes coming out of your plan, um, what I wish I had met with some of our business leaders one-on-one a little bit more frequently prior to the public release of the plan To kind of socialize this idea and get them more familiar with this idea that actually long term this is a um, sound business play to ensure that the residents are happy i think businesses for so long the goal right was a hundred percent capacity all the time and you know we're definitely shifting towards finding comfort as that goal versus max capacity and that can be scary for businesses and that's on me i'm not sure i did a good enough job of kind of getting people comfortable that we're not actually abandoning the work that we've always historically done we're kind of evolving as the industry and the community needs us to
3: evolve
4: yeah that's super that's super helpful insight
3: it is really hard to know the level of realization that different stakeholders have of the challenges that are being created by tourism because everyone i find is in their own silo working really hard on you know what what it is they need to do in their role or in their organization to to survive and to thrive especially coming out of covid and It's different in every place that I've seen the the level of acceptance or understanding of you know some of the different negatives that can come out of tourism if we don't carefully manage them. And so yeah, that's that's great advice.
1: I also think tourism takes the blame for a lot of things. At least in our community, we've seen quite a lot of new residents come in, and their reason for arriving here was different than you know a ski bum. It was kind of this urban exodus. So it's almost a cultural shift, and I see that clash actually contributing to this kind of seeing tourism in a negative light when really it's more about making sure we have welcomed new residents in and kind of understood that maybe people even understand the history of the place.
3: It is really hard because, on in the one way, new people come with new values, right? And that can quickly change the collective values and then on the other hand there's a blurring between you know pure tourism where people come on a a vacation for a weekend or a week and permanent residence and in between you know you've now got second homeowners and people who've moved there who can work remotely there's a real blurring of those things
1: anything else Eliza no, thank you so much for having me. It's always
4: fun to chat. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. I think, you know, we have a bit of Mountain Town solidarity as well.
5: Hi, I'm producer David Archer. This episode, we're bringing you three different perspectives on housing solutions for resort communities and other destinations. And next up, Robin speaks with Revelstoke City Councillor Aaron Orlando.
4: Aaron, can you tell me who you are and a little bit about your relationship to Revelstoke?
2: Yeah, uh, my name's Aaron Orlando. I'm a Revelstoke City Councilor. I'm on my uh, second term here, uh, and I've also uh, worked as a journalist in the community for the past 15 years. I was editor at the Revelstoke Review and then started uh, Revelstoke Mountaineer, which is more of a, a boutique indie uh, local news outlet.
4: Boutique indie, I like that. <laughs> So you ran for council and were elected um, just this past October uh, and you made housing a key pillar of your election platform. So why was that such a priority for you?
2: Yeah, housing's always been something i focused on and this is going back to 2008 writing stories uh, when I first arrived here about uh, the city's various housing planning efforts and uh, just uh, particularly the effect of resort development on housing. It has a uh, uh, predictable um, outcomes and uh, it's something you need to prepare for so uh, yeah I've, uh, over the years have uh, you know engaged in writing I've been past member of Rebel Community Housing uh, Society and uh, just really engaging on uh, housing issues in the community.
4: Have you seen an escalation of the housing crisis?
2: Oh yeah absolutely and it really came to a head I think uh, during the with the disruptions of the pandemic uh, You know, certainly during the last election cycle, uh, late last year, housing was the number one issue. I think, uh, you know, everyone these days has the stories of the challenges that we're facing, such as uh, uh, businesses not being able to hire staff or people getting um, uh, evicted uh, for one reason or another uh, from their homes. and, And we hear those really challenging stories, especially for families who Uh, You know, uh, maybe live here, work here at, you know, local businesses and uh, because for for one reason or another, they're forced to move and it becomes uh, not viable uh, for them to pay the higher rent. So, yeah, I would say certainly it was definitely the number one issue in the past election cycle uh, uh, by far. And I think everyone would acknowledge that.
4: Are there any solutions you're seeing uh, being explored or implemented in Revelstoke that uh, you think indicate a positive shift?
2: Yeah, um, I think uh, there's a lot to be positive about right now. Uh, number one, uh, from you know my uh, uh, perspective on council, I feel that uh, city staff have been really responsive to what they heard during the election cycle. Um, we set our strategic. We're we're in the process of setting our strategic priorities for this council and. Uh, Definitely uh, affordable housing and identifiable actions that we can take on the housing issue and affordable housing issue uh, have been integrated into uh, strategic planning. And those are leading to concrete uh, active steps happening right now. Um, And also, uh, yeah, we're exploring uh, uh, beefing up uh, the city's involvement uh, in the housing file, continuing to beef up. This has been an ongoing process that's been happening for you know, a a decade now. Uh, And so, uh, you know, to give you a couple examples, we're uh, working on a a land inventory right now to see what's available in the city that the city might own or uh, have available for potential housing through the Housing Society. And in partnership with the city, we're looking at uh, applying for new federal funding that would uh, allow for supportive housing and uh, um, you know we're taking active steps on the housing action plan to you know uh, take what was recommended through the planning process that concluded last year, uh, put those uh, into effect, and uh, we're also just actively working with uh, uh, and uh, having just better coordination between uh, uh, some of the society, uh, some of the groups working on the housing uh, file to. Uh, uh, really, uh, you know, put, get some wins on the ground uh, uh, and uh, bi- and get get building and uh, um, uh, in, you know continually increase our involvement uh, in the housing file.
4: You mentioned the uh, the nonprofit groups that are involved, so the Revelstoke Community Housing Society can you just describe the relationship um, of those different groups who are working on this to the city and what the city's role is?
2: So Revelstoke Community Housing Society was, a uh, uh, originally, uh, uh, a bit more of a city, uh, animal back in the day. Uh, so in the, uh, uh, you know, 2008 or nine, uh, it, it runs independently. Now there was some administrative changes, uh, over the years. And I think what you're essentially seeing is, uh, uh uh, uh acknowledgement uh by uh governments that we need to get uh, more involved and, and put more resources into it uh rubso community housing site is largely volunteer run and i believe everyone who serves in that organization deserves a medal as far as i'm concerned because these are really uh, salt of the earth people who are showing up uh, month after month taking on you know a, a development job essentially uh uh, it's not easy and uh, working really hard to, uh, for example, bring to fruition the Humbert Street project this year, which is 24 units of affordable housing, uh, and uh, they're continuing to uh, move forward with other uh, plans. Uh, one of the other concrete uh, things that is uh, um, slated uh, right now, or, or funding applications are being made, is to look at uh, preliminary development work for future uh uh, service for servicing for more housing especially up in the area around the ambulance station where uh, the Humbert project and the uh, Community Housing Society's other two projects are located so planning what happens next up there so that when uh, uh, grants become available uh, the uh, Housing Society can be prepared. But I think, you know, uh, to answer your original question, one of the things we're exploring right now is how do we bring more resources to this? How do we look at other uh, models and try and uh, find one that's right for uh, Rebel Stoke? There's examples out there, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, what is what is going to be the right mix for us? Because, you know, although we share a lot of the same uh, challenges, other communities we do have are unique and and uh and uh maybe uh, hopefully have uh, unique enthusiasm amongst the, the community to find some uh, pretty cool and creative solutions and I'm hopeful for that.
4: Are there any particular examples you would point to or or places that um you know have implemented solutions that we might be able to borrow pieces from?
2: Well yeah, I think um uh I understand you guys have talked to Marla Zucht from Worcester Housing Authority and um, in my mind um, they're uh, the biggest most developed uh, organization uh, housing authority in bc um they've been going since the the 90s so they have a head start and they've got a lot of uh benefits uh from um uh, just you know whistler being sort of a primary uh, resort community like so for example a lot of their uh, current stock uh came about during the olympics so it was olympic you know bills uh so I think that's a, a good one, but I, I think what we need to find is something that's right for here. So uh, we're inviting Marla up uh, early this year. We we're uh, to uh, have a talk about uh, what she uh, and uh, the organization there is doing, and what lessons we have to learn from them. Um, and uh, you know, for example, the WHA last year made a bunch of uh, changes to how they do things. So it's always a work in progress uh, to their bylaws and uh, rules. So. Yeah, I think that's a good one, but there are there are a lot of them out there, different models. Uh, so, for example, Sun Peaks also has a housing authority, and again, that's a much uh, a place that's smaller than us, and uh, maybe is more similar in uh, just being more newer to the game uh, of involvement in uh, housing.
4: Right, that's interesting. Sun Peaks probably we probably fall somewhere between a Whistler and a Sun Peaks in terms of community composition and, mm-hmm. and structure. Is there anything else um, you'd, you'd like to say to get on air about uh, housing in Revelstoke?
2: There's always lots of things to talk about um, on housing, but uh, I, uh, where I feel I'm at and I, where I feel the city's at and where I feel the community's at is, uh, you know, there's, uh, the field is wide open for action. For me, it's about how can we be effective over this four-year term, uh, w- uh, get some wins and get some results. Um, so, and really, uh, a team, multifaceted approach. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but. Uh, you know, for example, uh, we're working on a, a tiny home initiative, which is, you know, somebody's uh, uh, a community member has been championing that. Uh, so that's, you know, uh, another win that we can get. Uh, we've, uh, through the density pro bo, uh, bonusing program, we've uh, acquired, I believe it was six new units and a future new y- rental units uh, in a development application just in the past couple of weeks. So um, these are all you know concrete things that we're moving at, and I really think we, we need some some action. And you know, what you're doing, uh, Robin, through uh, this ongoing uh, discussion and process, I think is really good to to raise the discussion. And I know uh, if, uh, if we can be successful and I, I say we as in the city, uh, in channeling uh, you know that public conversation about housing into action, I think that's uh, really you know what I'm looking to do. You know, I really want, I know how's it, it's been a big issue and a, a topic of discussion for people uh, in the community. And I just uh, want people to know that, yeah, um, you know, I can speak for myself. And, and the current councils, were really focused on uh, uh, putting up some wins. And, you uh, know, um, you know, generally moving in the right direction on housing issues, it's going to be a challenge for the foreseeable future. Uh, we're in a crisis. And another thing I would like to add is uh, tomorrow, starting a discussion, uh, this is prompted by another councillor, uh, Lucio, on, uh, you know, the, uh, an issue that's facing all resort towns, and that's people living out of uh, campers and mobile homes and around town. So we're uh, trying to uh, engage in that issue uh, right away and just uh, sort of have a uh, Full court press on housing, uh, focused on being effective. Um, and I would like to thank staff and all the volunteers who are involved in this uh, yourselves as well. Uh, we have uh, so many things going on, and I'm hopeful that we can uh, make an impact in in the next few years.
4: Yeah, I think absolutely. You said, you know, there are a lot of um, different organizations working towards this goal. I sort of my metaphor would be like if there are a bunch of streams all flowing in the direction, eventually they make a river. So we've got tourism and. Community Futures and the Housing Society and the city and the business community is hugely passionate about this after um, seeing the, the staffing issues we had over the last couple of years. So I think there's there's reason to be positive.
5: Hi there, it's David again. We've got one more interview to share today, and this one comes from Whistler, British Columbia, a mountain resort community that is a little farther along than most destinations regarding housing solutions. Thanks for listening today, and I'll throw it over to Rodney.
3: Today's guest is Marla Zook. Marla is the general manager of the Whistler Housing Authority. The WHA is an approach to solving a mountain town housing crisis, and one we frequently hear reference to in Revelstoke. Marla, how did you become involved with the creation and management of affordable housing in Whistler?
0: Uh, thanks, Rodney, for the question. And good afternoon as well to Robin. And I would just like to first acknowledge that I am joining you today from um, the shared unceded territory of the Squamish Nation and Lil'wat Nation, where I have the great pleasure to get to live, work and play i've been with the whistler housing authority i've been the general manager there for the last well, about 15 years and i get the pleasure of working with a very dedicated team who were all working towards trying to provide more affordable housing options for the the whistler workforce our organization provides both affordable rental housing and affordable home housing for the labor force in Whistler.
4: Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is and, and
0: your relationship to Whistler, how long you've been there? Yeah, I've been living in Whistler for almost 28 years now. I grew up in Vancouver and in a family of skiers and ever since I was young we'd come up to Whistler to ski for most of our family vacations and I always had a fond place in my heart for this community. So after I did my undergraduate degree at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, I moved to Toronto to where I did my master's degree in urban planning. And I specifically focused on community housing models. And after I graduated with my master's degree in planning, I specifically focused on Whistler and looking at you know, the the housing model that existed. It was still fairly new at that point because this is back in about 2000. So I contacted um, Whistler, the town of Whistler. I, I did do some work in the planning department in Whistler. I also did some work in the planning department in West Vancouver. And then I started with the Whistler Housing Authority doing some research and policy work and just really believe in the organization, believe in the model. Um, I love what it is providing for the community as far as the legacy of affordable housing. I mean, Whistler has a goal of housing approximately 75% of the workers within our municipal boundaries and we've been able to achieve that for the last about decade. We've exceeded that in our housing closer to 80% of the workforce and in large part because of the employee housing program which the Whistler Housing Authority oversees for the, for the community. Can you tell us a little
4: bit about what the Whistler Housing Authority model is?
0: We, the Whistler Housing Authority is a subsidiary of the resort municipality of Whistler, so the town is our our sole shareholder. We are tasked with, the Whistler Housing Authority is tasked with building, developing, administrating over all the affordable housing in Whistler. So Whistler now has approximately 7,000 beds of employee housing. So those are affordable beds that are restricted exclusively for people that work in Whistler. And of that 1,000, it would be split approximately 50-50 between affordable rental housing and affordable homeownership housing. And So 7,000 beds for a population of 14,000 permanent population, it's a pretty significant number. And it probably represents about 25% of our our land um, accommodation base, um, the housing, like the residential base in Whistler.
3: It sounds like you're already having a massive impact, right? Housing 80% of the local workforce is a huge achievement. With the benefit of 15 years experience, if you could wave a magic wand right now, what would you do?
0: Well, I do have to give probably uh, acknowledgement, I should, to some of our the resort community neighbours to the south of us because I know the early leaders of our town back in the 90s looked down to Aspen and Vail and Breckenridge to learn from what those resort communities were doing. And at that time, Whistler knew that we were already kind of, um, impacted by a housing challenge to be able to house our local workforce, so you know, we learned from that what the resort communities south of us were doing and brought back some of those ideas to Whistler. Some of the most significant ones are putting price restrictions in place for on the for the housing units so whether it's on the rental accommodations or on the home ownership side for the resales we we cap those those rates so that the units continue to stay affordable in perpetuity for our community and our workforce. Um, We've learned a lot as we've gone through the program. The program has been in place for close to about 25 years now, and it continues to change. I mean, I think that's part of the success of it is we're not afraid to change. I mean, it is a very dynamic program. And we do continue to try to improve it and change it um, as the community changes, as the demographics of the town change. We know that we need to you know, keep innovating with the program. But the, the price restrictions are a huge component of being able to keep the housing units attainable and accessible and affordable for the workforce because prior. To our inventory the market housing units in whistler had just become out of reach for the local workforce in whistler another thing that we do in whistler um, which is a little unique is we have a employee service charge bylaw which essentially requires that every development commercial and industrial development that comes into whistler takes place in whistler so whether it's a it's a local mcdonald's it's a starbucks it's a it's a hotel every new development that comes into town has to contribute to employee housing and they can do that three ways they can either provide their some form of staff housing with their establishment which many of the local hotels have done or if they don't have that physical space to do that they can purchase housing elsewhere within the community and then restrict it for their staff. Or the third opportunity is they could do cash in lieu. So most of the commercial developers would have done a cash in lieu for the number of staff that their new development is going to generate within town because we know every new development is going to put additional strain on the housing inventory in town so you know we kind of turn the (laughs) turn the 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 challenge back to developers to you know collaborate with us on the solutions so by providing cash and lieu into a municipal housing fund we then have some equity that we can take to build additional employee housing for for the workforce and that's been a really successful um tool for our our housing model in whistler
4: I'm curious about the um, the path to purchase. Um, for say say I'm uh, working in town uh, and I've decided I'm at a at a stage where I want to buy a home in Whistler. Um, what how do I how do I access um, how do I access your resources
0: essentially? Right. Yeah. So you would contact our office. Whistler Housing Authority. We do have wait lists for both the affordable homeownership Program and the rental program. So, you would, in order to qualify for the program, you'd have to be working at least 30 hours a week within Whistler. You'd have to have, um, you'd have to be working for a Whistler business. So, you couldn't be working for a remote business and, and living in Whistler. You have to work for a Whistler based business and you have to ha- have Canadian or landed residency status within Canada. And you can't own real estate as well elsewhere. So once you've met those qualifications, you would apply through the Whistler Housing Authority program. You would get yourself your household on our wait list. And then depending on what type of housing you're looking for, and we have housing throughout the housing continuum. So we have studio apartment units right up to single-family dwellings and everything in between. So you would apply for what type of housing uh, you're looking for, and you get on your wait list, the wait list. And then once a unit comes available, we organize, our office organizes the open houses. We work with both the, the, the vendors and the purchasers to purchase the home. The prices are all set based on a predetermined, resale formula and calculation so there's no negotiation there's a set price there's a maximum set price you could offer less than the maximum set price but you cannot offer above the price so there's no there's no speculation in that in that respect and then once if you're highest on the on the wait list then you would be purchasing the home through our assistance with uh the vendor of the home and then similarly down the road when you go to sell your home you would be selling it back through the assistance with the assistance of our organization and there's no fees involved in any of, there's no like real estate commission fees. There are just small participation fees to apply to the program. There's it's a $50 application fee and then a $100 participation fee every year that you're on our wait list. But once you're in your home and when you go to sell at the end of the tenure of the home, there's no real estate commissions. We, the Housing Authority, absorbs those costs just to keep the units more affordable, again, for the homeowner
4: interesting many people purchase homes to be an asset even though they're living in it it's you know it's also an investment so what does what does the model do to affect sort of that aspect of home ownership
0: yeah the the price appreciation is tied to the cpi um, so the cpi within canada and and we we went through different models and iterations throughout the the history of the program. We contacted some of the economists working with um, CMHC, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, to assist um, with our program and looking at what um, appreciation model would be the fairest and, and work best for our organization. So we landed on tying the appreciation model to CPI. And we actually did a fairly extensive Um, community engagement process around that as well and the community also came back to us with feedback that that was the model that they were most interested in versus the setting at a a set percentage rate. So we landed on tying the appreciation to CPI consumer price index and the homes appreciate you know based on inflation. So it's it's a you know it's a modest but consistent uh, increase and what we end up seeing happen like once people are in our the housing authority inventory then you know they tend to move through the continuum if you know their household size changes one way or another they'll they'll either upsize and then buy you know a two bedroom or three bedroom or that and eventually maybe downsize we also have seniors housing units within our restricted inventory so you are building equity while you are a homeowner within the within our housing inventory
3: as part of our destination management planning process here we're looking to the future and and understanding the the major um opportunities and challenges within the community as we grow as a tourism destination. And housing is obviously uh, number one. What advice do you have for us as we try to solve that based on your experience?
0: Well, I think if you have the opportunity to create uh, a housing inventory that is available to your workforce, because I mean, you need to be able to attract and retain um, workers for your community. I mean, that's something that we realized was realized fairly quickly on in our development that if you can't have employees living in the community which they work, there's going to be there's going to be a, a problem for your community. So I think by able by being able to designate housing that's available really only to the workforce because you don't you know you want to remove that competition from the marketplace essentially employees incomes probably are not keeping up with what the real estate values are are doing or have been doing in the last you know two decades Um, so you want to be able to create opportunities where employees can put roots down within the community and that's what our model has provided and enabled workers within Whistler to do.
4: I think that's great, Marla. Some really interesting thoughts for us uh, uh, in Revelstoke. Hous- housing and affordable housing is the number one issue um, for most of our community. We just did a really robust uh, resident serving process as, as part of our destination management planning planning efforts here. And, and everyone just is is looking for solutions on affordable housing. And the Whistler Housing Authority uh, is something that that comes up fairly frequently, um, and it, it's really nice to see a community that you know has has more tourists and a and a bigger and a more tourism reliant economy than ours, but uh, is really crafting homegrown solutions.
0: Yeah, I think you know we, as I say, we've been at it for probably close to twenty five years addressing the housing issues within the community, and you know we. We've continued to try to innovate and try different uh, strategies and initiatives and, you know, not be afraid to try something that might not work. You know, whether it's it's a housing policy or whether it's a, a, a form of housing and a designated neighbourhood, but try it and, you know, then evaluate it and revisit it and try again. So we've continued to try to, you know, go through an iterative process and keep innovating as, as the community grows. And I think that's served us well.
3: Thank you, Marla, so much for coming to spend some time with us today. And it's really inspiring to hear the solutions that you've been involved in, Whistler. And I hope that we can learn from those
0: well, I think every community is grappling with these housing concerns and housing challenges, so I think we can take some solace in knowing we're not at it alone either we're all We're all trying to find solutions for making our communities you know safer, uh, more affordable, more secure places for people to live.
4: Yeah, it certainly gives us some ideas. Thanks, Marla. I really appreciate you joining us today.
5: This has been Think Revelstoke, presented by Tourism Revelstoke and Destination Think. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Lindsay Payne and Annika Rautiola provided production support. Our show comes from the beautiful city of Revelstoke, British Columbia, Canada, located on the land of the Seneigst, the Sequetmec, the Silks, and the Tunaha. This has been the final episode of Think Revelstoke this season, and if you're hearing these words... I just want to say thank you very much for listening. And if you missed some earlier episodes, they will remain available for download through your favorite podcasting app. Thanks again to both our radio and podcast listeners. And we'll see you again next time.